Okay, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. And I'm just going to read it and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own, in his own town, among his relatives, in, his, in his, his own home. And he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if... and, and If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against it. They were out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and he healed them. Lord, would you please speak to us through this passage? Show us more of you. That's my cry, more of you. And I want to know who you really are. Lord, I pray that you would help us put away the um, impressions that are not of you that we have, perhaps who we want you to be, but who you simply aren't. Help us to, to look at this with fresh eyes and a fresh view. Give us eyes to see. Lord, let us be kind of in our imaginations, um, wallflowers watching you, studying you. What are you like, Lord? Reveal yourself. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, We've been trying to watch and get a feel for Jesus through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday morning. And the goal has been not to know more about Jesus, but really to use our imaginations as we read. Ask God's Spirit to help us watch and see Him. What's He like? What's his personality like? What are the main traits that Mark is trying to show us? And if you were to, I think of it yourself, if you were trying to describe to the next generation a person, what would be some things you would emphasize? What would be some things that you would highlight? What would be some, some, um, some colors, some shades of light, light that, you would back, that you would back out from? What would be the primary characteristics? What would be the secondary characteristics? That's what Mark is doing. He's trying to paint literarily And through story and through this ancient biography, he's trying to paint for us a description and an image of Jesus, not just for us to look at, but actually to interact with, so we can know who he is. And it's really important because who, what we think about Jesus, what we think about God, really does shape our entire worldview. It's the it it dictates the way you look at yourself how you interpret your own behavior, your own person, your own identity. And it dictates and, um, how you look at the world, how you look at other people, um, how you read the news, how you watch TV, how you look at culture, how you interact with culture, the things you accept about culture, the things you reject about culture. All of those things, if you whittle them down, they come to your view of God. And <clears throat> a lot of scholars talk about the Gospels like a stereo system. And the idea is to try to listen to the sounds of Jesus from its stock, uh, out-of-the-box sound. Without the tweaks of our culture and pop culture and the commentaries that we've read and all of those things, for some of us, Jesus' treble is cranked up and the bass is gone. For others, the bass is way high and the, and the, the mids and the treble is, is way down. We're trying to take a fresh look, we're attempting to take a fresh look and see what does Mark want us to know about Jesus? What is he emphasizing? It's not that, and you'll find that it's really complex, just like a human being, a person. 
We, you know, we like Jesus to be simple. He's this, but he's not this. And he's that, but he's not that. But in reality, it's more like he's, um, well, he's a person. Think of any, any person that you know, and you'll realize that you can't really take away everything, and you can't really ex- explain them in total kinds of terms. They are all of this, or they are all of that. Usually a little bit is true of all, but they emphasize certain things more than others. And that's what we're trying to find. That's what Mark's trying to do through this passage. <clears throat> Last week, we saw um, one of the things that Jesus was not in a hurry. He didn't react. He was in control. He went at his own pace. He was completely dependent on the Father. He knew what it meant to rest and to be at peace and to react to the world in that way. For those of you that have been with us through some of this study, what are some other things that you've noticed about Jesus from the text or that you've learned? What are some things that you've learned about him? He does things in a surprising way. Yeah, that's true. Very true. He's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry, no. He ruthlessly eliminates hurry. That's actually a book that you can pick up by a guy named, I can't remember. Anyways. (laughs) Super helpful, Mike. Anything else? What have you noticed about Jesus? Yes, not impressed with the social, social economic things or way we categorize people. Yep, absolutely, yep. He's always was kind of a step ahead of everybody else in the vicinity, all the stories. Yep. Yeah, it seems like he'd be an extremely frustrating guy to play at chess because he'd be one step ahead. Darn it. Okay, yeah, okay, great. Good observation. He's present, and he's able to, uh, we saw that last week, in the midst of a lot of um, priorities coming his way, he's able to cut through and know what's really important in that moment. Yep, that's impressive stuff. When we see a leader like that, we're usually always impressed with someone that can keep the main thing the main thing, yeah. I thought someone was going to say something over here. Well, he doesn't walk too slow. He walks too slow, yes. He's a three-mile-an-hour God, as one scholar said. Yes, absolutely. He'll get there when he gets there. If you die before he gets there, he might raise you from the dead. Yeah, he'll, 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 make, it, he'll make it work. Anybody else? He cares. Deeply cares, yes. What we see is a very caring, caring person. Uh, well, um, This passage highlights another element of Jesus' personality that we might find, that we probably do find, disturbing. This is, if we're looking at, um, thinking of Jesus as a stereo system, I think this is probably one of the frequencies we've we've tried to turn down, especially in the West. And that's this. It's right there in verse 3. Your eyes might have gone right over it. Jesus was an offensive person. I mean, it's right, I mean, uh, it's right there. Look at, uh, th- in fact, that is the crux of this entire passage. Um, and they took offense at him. Here's what that word means. It's, uh, it's a very, 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 very powerful word. It doesn't mean um, we disagree. It doesn't mean, um, well, you have your opinion and I have mine. It doesn't mean, you know, hey, well, I'm glad you have your truth and I, you know, and I have my truth good for you. It, actually, the word in the Greek is scandalizo, where we get our word scandalized. They were scandalized by him. That means they were morally outraged by Jesus. They were loudly offended. They had a very visceral reaction to Jesus. He was an offensive guy. Um, today... We need to come to grips this morning with the fact that Jesus was a very off-putting, outrageous kind of a person. He was, the, he was an outrageous person who naturally forced people to decide what they thought about him, okay? Um, so first of all, it must be noted that like all controversial figures, Jesus both offended and impressed people wherever he went. And we'll get back to that. We'll get more, more on that in a minute. But there was a mixture of both disdain and worship when it came to Jesus wherever he went. And that's the type of person he is. We like to, see, we, we like to think of Jesus as nice. Jesus is nice. 
He's kind. But when you read Mark and the other Gospels, that's not the main impression that you get. If you were just to read it again, stock right out of the box and start to play what you're going to play, the first, certainly he is nice, certainly. But that's not the first impression that would stick with you as you're reading through this. This is clearly not the emphasis that Mark or the other gospel writers are trying to put forward and convey as a prominent personality trait. Again, look, I'm sure Jesus was nice, but that's not what stuck out. That wasn't one of the traits that shook people to their core. Um, When you read through the gospels, people didn't walk away from Jesus going, oh, he was nice. What a nice guy. You, you will not read accounts like that. Um, John Stott pointed out uh, many, many years ago um, that you never get a moderate reaction from people in the Gospels when they've encountered Jesus. You always only see them react in some extreme kind of a way. Um, in fact, Stott actually categorized it into three different ways that people, um, he did a survey of people's reactions to Jesus and he can categorize them in three different ways. They either ran from him in fear they, they either turned on him and tried to kill him or they recklessly gave up everything to follow him. Those are the three options John Stott would say when you read about Jesus in the Gospels. Those are the three reactions. No one ever walked away and said, what a nice guy. Here's a good example for me to model my life after. This is what you don't see. We like that, but that's not what you see. Um, They only ever responded to Jesus in extremity, which means he must have been an extremely controversial figure. He must have been an extremely offensive figure that in some ways shook things up because only, as we've seen through history and even currently, only extreme, outrageous, offensive people can get themselves killed and worshipped at the same time. And that was what Jesus was, that's what ends up happening. So a nice Jesus is what we want but not necessarily what we find when we read the Gospels. And we're going to see um, that the second you embark on any kind of a campaign to defang Jesus, to try to make him more palpable for your spiritual palate, you end up with more problems than when you started, actually. And we'll get into that. Today we're going to look at three things. Why Jesus was and is so offensive. Why? Secondly, we'll look at why it, why it was and is absolutely necessary that Jesus be a, stay offensive. Why that's important. Why it needs to be that way. Why if you take away this part of Christianity, you will end up with something that's not Christianity. Okay? And thirdly, we'll look at what this means for those of us that follow Jesus, that want to follow him in this world and take up that great commission So first, let's look at the reasons Jesus is so offensive. First, um, I'll pick it up in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, not everyone, many who heard him were amazed. Um, So Jesus goes to his hometown and he begins to teach. And um, many of the people were, the word is amazed, but that word is not a positive word. Um, in the Greek language. It means, quote, to shock, to be thrown off course, or according to one Greek lexicon puts it, it's to drive, one, uh, to drive out of one's senses by a sudden shock. So something about the, what Jesus was teaching, and if you read in verse three, it'll say, where did he get this wisdom? What that means is this philosophy, this worldview, this outlook on life, the way he thinks, that's coming out of his mouth right now. Where did he get this? I'm shocked by it. It's off-putting. I don't like it. Um, we're, we're, we're offended by this. Amazed, shocked. Now, it's important to note that this is not the only time Jesus offends people as if this is an isolated event. We find it everywhere in the Gospels. Um, elsewhere, he offends the elites, He offends the religious elites, the cultural elites. He offends Herod. He offends uh, Rome. He offends the the religious leaders. Um, Here he comes into a small town, probably around, this is his hometown, Nazareth, probably around 400 people. And he offends people there. Later he goes into the big city and he offends people there. In other words, what we're talking about here is a spectrum. My point is, Jesus offends everybody. Really. And here, I want to get into that a little bit. He offends the high and he offends the low. 
He offends the leaders, and he offends ordinary people with his teaching. He offends everybody in some way. My point is that there are things in the teachings of Jesus that offend every person in every culture. Jesus offends everyone. And I want to make a case later that he's got to offend you in order for you to be a Christian. You're not a Christian unless you've been offended at one point by Jesus. He offends every kind of person in every, diff- in every different culture. He offends them for different reasons. People get offended for different reasons in different ways, but he offends them all the same. So here in Seattle, what are some things that people are offended of when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to his teachings, some things that he has said? What are some things in our Western, in Seattle's culture, that people get offended, scandalized when it comes to Jesus? He says it like it is. Okay, so he's truthful. Okay, yeah. What, what, what are some things that he says? Yeah. He's the only way. Yes, his exclusive claims. Absolutely. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. I've met many a Seattleite that have been deeply offended at that sentence. The exclusivity of Jesus Christ. Yep, anyone else? What are some other things that people are offended? Or you can imagine, you can assume people would be offended of here. Yeah. That he's the judge, okay. Uh, Yeah, hell. Yep, his teachings on hell. Here's a great uh, quote about that. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. We don't like that here in this culture. It's icky. We don't like that at all that he's the judge, that he's going to make all, you know, on the one hand, we think to ourselves here in the West, without a judge, how can we survive? On the other hand, we think to ourselves, without a cosmic judge, or with a cosmic judge, how am I going to survive, right? (laughs) Shoot. Okay, anyone else? What's that? I'm so sorry, I didn't hear you. Follow your husband. Okay, yes. Okay, absolutely. Um, You could put that under sexual ethics, right? Gender type things. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman and commits adultery with her in his heart has has committed adultery with her in heart. Or have you not read that he created them from the beginning, male and female, and said, therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and, and, the, and shall cling to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. In other words, one woman, one man forever or for one lifetime. Committed relationship. We're, we're, when it comes to sexual ethics in this culture in Seattle, those are the things that we, I've heard people say, if I could just do out with those things, I'd love Jesus. You know? I love, his, I love his justice. I love that he's, I, the things that we love about Jesus, I love how he elevates women. I love that he brings in the marginalized. I love that he gives grace to people who are down and out and in sin and just through grace, not performance. I love that he's so accepting and loving. I love those things. Those are some things that we love about him in this culture. His inclusion. Um, we love that Jesus stands against corruption. He takes on the religious machine of his day. We love that stuff, you know? Um, Here's what's interesting. Go to a non-Western culture and you'll find that they're offended also from Jesus, but for completely different reasons. That's what's really interesting. We like to think that our culture is the reason to be offended, (laughs) you know, because we know the most. We know the more. We're on the cutting edge. We know everything else. But actually, in other cultures, people are offended as well, and people love Jesus as well, but for just completely different and maybe even opposite reasons. For one thing, they don't have a problem, especially in traditional cultures or or collective cultures, they don't have a problem with his exclusive claims whatsoever. Not at all. To go into a collective culture and say there is one truth, they will not be offended by that idea. They might disagree with you on what that truth is, but the idea that there is only one way, they will not be offended by that. Their traditionalist culture. You have to believe certain things for their tribe and their, their, uh, their nation or their clan. They have no problem with the idea um, that there is only one truth. They're, they're, um, here's what some things they're offended at. They're, they're offended at some of the very things that we love. What do you mean that God will accept anyone even though they lived like a criminal? To them, that's scandalous. 
What do you mean that God will accept somebody that abandoned their, their tribe and abandoned their family and betrayed us all, and yet they can just be forgiven? I'm offended by that. What do you mean Jesus accepts people who've done some awful things? And here's my point. Jesus Christ will always offend people. And it's really important for us to understand this because we in the West think, man, if I could just move somewhere else where it's not so dark or it's not so liberal or it's not so whatever, then it would be a lot better. Well, yes and no. It would be better for some reasons and worse for others. Because Jesus will always offend the dominant ideas of your heart in any culture. Do you understand? That's the whole point. Jesus comes against every dominant idea that's not him, that's driving your heart, and that's driving any culture. He will offend them in different ways. Jesus' teaching at some level will violate those things. Here in the West, the the basic dominant ideas that drive our culture is individualism. That's what's what's driving us. No one tells me what I should do with my money. No one gets to tell me that. I decide. No one tells me what gender I am. No one gets to tell me what, what I do with my body. That's my decision. How dare you? No state gets to come in and, and, and do that to, to us, especially America, okay? But in collective cultures, the basic ruling idea is not individual choice, but moral duty and performance to the clan. For them, it is, we will tell you what your role in life is, absolutely, because you're going to, that's our legacy. That's how society is going to be ran. You have a role to play. If you're in India and you're born into a family of doctors, but you want to be a singer and you've got a great voice, sorry. That's great that you have a good voice, but you're going to be a doctor because it's what we do. This is what we do. This is what our family is. This is what we've done for generations after generation after generation. See what I'm saying? It's different. And Jesus will offend both, and he does offend both, but for very different reasons. In America, we make an idol out of the individual. In Africa, they make an idol out of the collective. Jesus overturns all of that. By the way, side note, do you know how many people, I read this the other day, do you know how many people are becoming Christians every day in the world? They're estimating 70,000 people become Christians a day in the world. I just, I, I just thought, that'd be ref, I thought that'd be refreshing for us being here in Seattle. What was that? Sorry, Mike. What, what is the metric of that? Is that just a generalized, like, raise your hand? Or what they... I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't, they didn't describe the metric, but they just said in most, um, outside of the modern world, in, uh, in like second, third world countries, especially Africa. Africa is becoming the new Christian capital of the world. We're seeing tons of theologians come out of Africa that are, that are making major contributions to scholarly works. Um, uh, with a, with a, I mean, it's a, it's a nerdy topic for me. I would love to go off on it. It's, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. You, we will start being influenced by Um, African culture, especially theologically. And that is not, that's a very good thing. Because they, because, here's why it's a good thing, they love Western European theology and they're just adding to it their own insights from their own particular perspectives and it's pretty beautiful. Um, So anyways, there you go. But I thought that's refreshing for being here in Seattle. We're here, here, Christianity, we're the underdogs, we're, we're, we feel like we're shaking, quivering in a corner. Where in, in Africa, especially Africa, also who would have thought China? Uh, it's just growing and growing there. But now most people are saying in about 10 years or so, the, the Christian capital will be, in, will be in Africa. It's amazing. It's amazing. And one of the reasons why you'll find that brand, for lack of a better word, of Christianity different. They hold to the main tenets, but it will look different, is because they come from a collective perspective, a traditional culture, rather than an individualistic culture like ours. And there are problems with that there, and also blessings with that there. It's very, very interesting. So Jesus is, def- is offensive in diverse ways, and it's really important for us to see that, because 
we need to keep in mind that, um, well, for one thing, we need to realize that Jesus is still going to offend you and me. And I hope to show to you that has to happen. That's one of the beauties of Christianity and one of the beauties of Jesus is that he's a God that can talk back with you. He can argue with your Western sensibilities. Whether you like it or not, he can, he can go toe-to-toe with you. And when we try to turn him down, we're making him into an app. You can't have a relationship with an appliance. You have a relationship with people, and people are allowed to come against you. Anybody who's married understands that. One of the beauties of marriage is that you have somebody that says you're better than that, and I'm going to challenge you to stop doing that. That's one of the beauty. It doesn't feel like that at the time, but that's part of relationship. Someone that can confront, someone that can fight for you, can believe in you, can challenge those things, can wrestle back with you. Um, and that's part of the beauty of, of Jesus. So look at the other reason the text gives, gives us, because I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, look what else. So also his teaching, but also look at something else. Let's look at verse, uh, well, let's pick it up at verse 2. And we'll go to around verse, we'll go to end of verse 3. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Here it is. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. In other words, they couldn't appreciate Jesus because they couldn't penetrate the veil of his familiarity. He was, what's that? Or upbringing. He was, well, and the thing is, you're known. We know you, man. You're ordinary. You're familiar. We've seen you grow up. We know you're the carpenter. We know your sisters. We, you're, not, you're, not, you're not something flashy. We know you. Who does this guy, and, and, and because of that, he seems audacious he seems pretentious how dare you do a miracle how dare you talk to us like you know something we don't it you know it every parent's going to understand this when their kids go away to college and come back and start telling you what they think they know and you're going to be like i used to you know wipe your tushy and tuck you in and teach you math and now you're you know maybe some of us we don't have to wait for college good night my seven-year-old you know, it's our, it starts. And at some point, um, there will be a sense of almost, you have to fight off disdain. Hey, I'm the parent here. You're the kid. That's kind of what's happening here in, in his village. Remember, only 400 people. Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows him. Not only that, is he familiar, but most commentaries believe that this reference to Mary is a reference to the bad reputation in which Jesus was conceived. Uh, remember, this is a patriarchal community. So in other words, they don't refer to kids by their mother's name. They refer to kids by their father. Oh, you're Jameson's dad, they would say to, El- to Elodie. Oh, you're Mike's dad, they would say to Noble. You know? Um, so th- that's what's going on. Th- this reference to Mary is, most commentators believe, is, is clearly a reference to the scandal that was around Jesus when he was, he was conceived. And I mean, in other words, how dare this bastard talk to us like that? That's what's happening here. You're not only familiar, but you're broken. We know your dirty secrets. Don't talk to us like you think you're all that. We know where you came from. You weren't, you weren't made of some incredible social economic tinder. You're just this normal guy that's got this broken past and this broken history that's got this dirty secret. We know who you are. And therefore, his ministry was ineffective. Jesus says that this is one of the reasons many societies and places don't see the miracles of God. Mark records that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And because of that, he could, here's the quote, he couldn't do mighty work there. Why? Because they wouldn't recognize it. They wouldn't see it. Here's the idea. They've explained away everything about Jesus as familiar to where they can't see a miracle. 
If everything is explained away, eventually a culture loses its awe. We, you know, obviously we come from, a, we are the products of, a, of the scientific revolution. Our culture is major products of that. And one of the things that looking into things science has done is it's made things that used to make people go, oh, wow, look at that, it's incredible. Well, now it's explained. Now it's familiar. We've lost our awe with things. Forgetting that just because something's explained doesn't mean it's any less of a miracle. Just because we understand how something works doesn't mean it's not a miracle anymore. doesn't mean God's not behind it. But there's something with the familiar that makes us not see the miracles that are around us every day, right now. The fact that your heart is beating in your chest and you're not telling it to. The fact that you're breathing in and out. The amazing feeling when you see someone you love and a smile comes on their face and a smile goes on your face and you've got a connection without words. That's amazing. That's a miracle. It's incredible. And on and on and on we could go all around us that we take advantage of every day. Why? Because of familiarity. God works in the familiar. I think this is the lesson here. God works in the familiar and God works in our brokenness. What are we expecting? What are we expecting before we deem something a work of God? Or why is it that you're missing things and I'm missing things because they fail to meet some expectation? Uh, that they're from God. We have expectations that are in the subconscious. We're expecting something to flash from the sky or we're expecting a big voice or we're expecting an a- or something extraordinary to, to happen. But you need to understand, this is the, God, the essence of Jesus and the essence of Christianity, the essence of the gospel is something extraordinary becoming ordinary. You know that. That's... And that's what's, we just came out of the Christmas season. That's what's hard about Christmas for us. Christmas, we put up the lights. We make it a special thing. We have celebrities come out and sing. We put on the music. We feel all warm and fuzzy and nostalgic and all of those things. Forgetting that it was not that way when Jesus was born. He was born in a manger. Jameson and I were talking that after the the, the narrative of his birth, there's like 20-something years of of obscurity that the Bible does not record about Jesus. You know what that means? That means Jesus was growing up doing everyday things, day in, day out, waking up, working on the farm. Carpenter, by the way, is a loose translation. Some kind of farming. Maybe he took up carpentry or stonework later to make up for the money they couldn't make with the farm. That's what most people think. Um, But mundane, everyday chores the grind for 20-something years before he shows up at the baptism of John and gets baptized and his ministry starts. Was God not at work there? Of course he was. Because God works in the ordinary and so much of the time we miss that because what are we, especially in the West, what are we looking for? We want to be wowed. We want to be like, (gasps) we want goosebumps pimples and we want you know smoke and we want you know something undeniable and all of those things and all the reason I think God marvels at our lack of faith because we go by missing it every day every moment every second we're missing it that God is here he's everywhere he's Emmanuel God with us and his presence we miss it because it's so ordinary but God loves to work through the ordinary and that goes to you too do you know that God loves to work through ordinary people He loves to work in ordinary situations. He loves to work in brokenness. Here, these guys, they didn't see Jesus as being anything special because they knew his seemingly broken past, what they assumed about his mother. But even though though that's not true, we know Mary, she was... was, um, you know, the Holy Spirit came upon her and she was miraculously, she miraculously conceived. There was no impropriety or anything like that going on there. But if you keep going back further in Jesus' family tree, there is. Think of some people. Uh, 
You know where Jesus, think of Judah. Think of Judah in the Old Testament, in Genesis. You want to read a messed up story, scandalized story. It's the story of Judah. You know, we see Judah, we think the lion of the tribe of Judah. We think, we think uh, you know, this, this is valiant, strong kind of a name. The guy was an absolute dirtbag. And God used him. Uh, I mean, we could keep going on. Think of Jacob. We talked about him a few weeks ago. This um, manipulative con artist his entire life. And yet God used him. Think of, um, think of David. You know the story of David. This isn't Jesus' family tree. The story of David, David's up on the roof. He should be in battle. He looks across. He sees a beautiful woman bathing nakedly on the roof. He arranges for her to come to his, to his place. They begin this steamy affair. She ends up being pregnant. It's a big scandal. It's, you know, it could be on the front page of all the newspapers. They don't want to get that out. So David arranges for her husband to be killed. Her husband, who's this righteous, incredible guy who's out there fighting for him. David arranges for the husband to be murdered. He murders her husband and then claims the kid, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take her, you know, claims that the kid is his and says, I'll, I'll do the valiant thing and I'll take the I'll take the wife and the son in my own house to take care of him. He makes himself look like this hero. And Bathsheba conceives a second time, and and that is Solomon. Solomon came from an illicit affair, basically, that God blessed later. (laughs) He said, okay. And Jesus came out of that. Think of Rahab, Rahab in the Old Testament, the prostitute who harbored the spies so that they could, go, they could spy out the, the, the uh, promised land in Jericho. These are all people in the line. God uses broken people. What do we think? We miss it because we think, well, not me because I have this problem or I can't get over this. There's this habit that I can't master. There's this thing that I can't do. God has a way of using your brokenness. In fact, it will become one of your greatest assets. And we miss it because of those things. God works in the ordinary. This is the power of the gospel. The extraordinary became the ordinary. The spirit of God, the cosmic power of salvation for the whole world, works in the most ordinary through the most familiar people. And so we miss it because we're expecting something mega. We're expecting, you know, we say it can't be. It should be mind-blowing, earth-shadowing, dramatic, you know, gold dust or something. It needs to be this beautiful thing. And yeah, sure, God can do that and God has done that. But more often than not, it's right now in the ordinary. So the real danger of sin, according to this, is that it can take something miraculous and explain it away and make it so familiar that it's no longer noticeable. That's the danger of it. We can explain something away to where it's not, it's not knowable anymore or not acknowledgeable anymore. And our culture is the masters of that. But the miracle is precisely because God works in the broken and the familiar. And I think that's I think Christianity needs to get back to its roots with that. I think it's okay. I used to work with um, high schoolers all the time for about a long time, 18 years or something like that. And we, after a while, I started to understand some things. I started understanding, okay, I can entertain them and I can make them laugh and have a great time during youth group, but when they graduate, they're gonna go to church And it's not going to be like that. They're not going to play, you know, pin the tail on the youth pastor or anything, you know, goofy things like that. So I decided I'm going to have a normal church service every Wednesday night for youth group. And I'll tell you what, you guys were there. That youth group thrived. It grew. It was, and not just grew numerically, it grew spiritually. Kids were serving. Um, It was incredible. Because it was ordinary. We didn't, and so I would meet these other youth pastors and they would say, what are you doing? How, what's, your, what's your formula? What's your thing? What games are you playing? What are your icebreakers? <laughs> and I would just shyly or, you know, say, well, you know, I just don't do any of those things anymore. We just worship God and we do a Bible study. 
Really, how long do you teach? About 45 minutes to an hour. <gasps> There's no way they could pay attention for that. Well, they do. They do. In fact, they're on the edge of their seats most of the time because God's Spirit is doing something so powerful. And when they go to church, they're going to get more of the same. Ordinary things. Extraordinarily ordinary, you could say. <clears throat> At the heart of it all, open our eyes, God, so that we can see. That we can see him in the everyday. And I, I don't think we should apologize as a church for, 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 have, for, for seeing God in everyday life for seeing him in the beauty, because otherwise we're going to go around life looking for the next aha moment. And that's just not life, is it? Is it? Though They do happen, and we're grateful for when they do. Retreats and those special things are important. I'm not poo-pooing the whole thing. But when it's just a steady diet of cotton candy, you know, we, our taste buds get used to <gasps> the wow and the Hey, um, that's just not realistic. God is in the hard stuff. He's in the, the arguments. He's in the unresolved. He's in all of the things that we go through every day and we end up compartmentalizing. Well, God's for church on Sunday because that's where the laser beams and the smoke comes and all of that kind of stuff. Fine, but I think that's a problem when it comes to an overall balanced spiritual diet. It's okay. We're gonna study the word of God. We're gonna go through life together and we're gonna see how he's there in life too. To follow Jesus, now here's why this is necessary, that Jesus must be offensive. Uh, I'm sure you realize by now that the Western society has been trying to defang Jesus for many, many years now. Um, and the chief way they've tried to declaw him is by discounting the Gospels as reliable history. Um, and you can just know this by every time Christmas or Easter comes out, just pick up a pick up a National Geographic magazine or pick up a Newsweek periodical and they will tell you um, that the Gospels aren't reliable. Yes, there was somebody named Jesus, but we know very little about him. We know he was probably a peasant farmer, um, you know, in, in Gal uh, Upper Galilee. Um, yes, we know he was crucified by the Roman government. We know that too. But one thing we do know, they will say, they will say we know that he, he did not claim to be God. He wasn't a miracle worker. They will discount all miraculous or all supernatural. He wasn't a miracle worker. He didn't claim to be God. Um, all of those things came hundreds of years later by communities, by groups that were following him who adjusted the narrative as to what suited their community needs. That's how they did things back then in the ancient world. They would communicate. They would minister to each other through story, through myth. And so if their community was going through something, they would adjust the story about Jesus and say, hey, Jesus did, took care of it this way, and uh, that's what became Christianity. But we now know that none of those things are true. And there are so many problems <laughs> with this, with this uh, form of historical point of view that it's called form, form critique, if you want to know what it's called. But one of the reasons form critics are trying to reconstruct the historical Jesus without the Gospels is precisely to get rid of the offensive stuff. You know that. It's, it comes from a philosophy behind it all that says we don't believe in the supernatural. We, we Westerners, we can't believe in a supernatural realm because the material, the material is all we have. They, we've proven that now. All we can see is what there is. There's no room for a soul or a spirit or those types of things. So we know that. And if we can, just, we can just discount the Gospels as, historic, as historically reliable, um, like ancient biographies, which is, what, which is exactly how they match. If you look at other ancient biographies, the Gospels match that genre almost perfectly. Um, you, can make Jesus, you can make him an unoffensive Jesus. Still follow him, but just know that what he said, that, that was made up later type of a thing. And the problem is, as I told you earlier, the beauty of Jesus is precisely that he can confront the dominant principles and ideas driving every human heart in every, in, in every culture. Those, those idols that are in our hearts, those idols that are in our culture, they need to be confronted and they need to come down. And when you make an unoffensive Jesus, what you have is a God that can't argue with you, a God that can't challenge you. You can't have a relationship with a God like that. And at the heart of the cross is offense. 
You can't be, in fact, I will say, you can't become a Christian without first being offended. The cross says, here's what the cross says. The cross says that you are so wretched to God that even on your best day, he had to send his son to die for you. That's offensive. The cross says you cannot save yourself. There's nothing that you can do. And in a society like ours that thinks, well, human progress and technology will eventually solve all of our problems, that, is, that goes against the cultural narrative. You, we can't solve all of our problems, especially on a spiritual level. We are bankrupt spiritually. The only way that, human, that mankind could be saved was by Jesus coming to die for us. That's the, and, and, and I want to say, that bears, more, that bears more congruence with history than does, than does the form critic perspective. Um, because form criticism cannot explain why Jesus was both, why he was killed. Here's the problem. If you make Jesus, um, if you make Jesus nice and friendly, if you make him like Mr. Rogers, no one wants to kill Mr. Rogers because he's too nice. He's too friendly. So therefore, they can't explain why was he killed? Why was he crucified? Especially in the Roman world, they were pretty um, lenient on people worshiping other gods. They were pretty pluralistic. You could worship other gods. Why kill Jesus unless he was a threat to the, to the king, to Caesar himself, which he was? He shook some stuff up. And, not only that, why did people both hate him and why did people worship him? And not just anybody start worshiping him, a large amount of Jewish people. The most uh, the most unlikely group of people, the most unlikely demographic to worship a human being as God, to believe that a human being could rise from the dead would be the Jewish people. And yet, it's the greatest mind-scratcher of all historians that Christianity changed the course of the world because people both hated this man and hundreds and eventually thousands of people worshipped him within a matter of a hundred years. In fact, in a very short time, Christianity was a global religion. It spread very quickly. How do you explain something like that? By, how do you explain something like that by posing that Jesus was this nice little peasant farmer who was a good moral teacher? You can't. It doesn't make any sense. At the heart of the cross is offense. You can't become a Christian without first being offended. The, the way to Christianity is to say, first, I have failed. I'm a sinner. Not only have I sinned, I am a sinner. The Bible talks about that in two different ways. One in a verb, I have sinned, and one is an identity. In other words, something in me is deeply, deeply broken. And the only way I can get out of this is intervention from the outside. Jesus died on the cross. Because sometimes the only way to save somebody is to offend them, is to tell them the truth, like what Kristen said. He told it like it is. He went through and he shook some things up, not, out of, not just for the sake of it, not because he was bombastic, but because he loved. He loves us enough to do it. And when we take that out, we end up with something that's less than Christianity. Conviction, guilt, repentance is part of our lives. It's extremely important. And even in the psychiatric world, they're starting to find out that one of the greatest problems is denial. Someone that cannot, someone that is hard for a psychotherapist to work with is someone that will not see that there's a problem at all or will not admit guilt. They're trying to do away with the idea of sin, that we're guilty for anything, and yet the Bible would say, no, that's very important. Because without it, we can't get to the truth. We can't get to the truth of it. Okay, what does this mean for us that follow Jesus? Where are we going um, to follow Jesus? We're also going to be rejected like him. Let me just real quickly comment on the last section here. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This is verse 6 going into verse 7. 
calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but, not, but don't take an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. What does that mean? That means they were probably offending people. They drove out many demons. That means uh, con- confrontation. And they anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Um, Look at this. It says in verse 7, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. Gave them leadership. In other words, he gave them the same kind of ministry that he himself had, a ministry of rejection. This is why, um, in a literary sense, Mark decided to put this section right after the section where Jesus is rejected in his hometown. In other words, Jesus is rejected, and so will we be. Our life is a life primarily characterized by rejection, if we're doing it right. <laughs> he says, calling, and, and notice, so notice what he says to us. Notice what he says to us that are going to, especially, this is very pertinent for Seattle. What does it say to those of us who are, gonna, who are called to love a city who won't love us back? What does that mean? Well, one, he sends them out two by two. Christians die alone. You know, figuratively speaking. We're meant to be together. We're meant to, this church service, us meeting together, going to each other's houses, meeting for coffee, calling each other, chatting with each other, doing life together, that is a way, that's not an add-on, that is survival. We cannot get through, especially in a place like Seattle, we won't, we won't make it without, I won't make it without you. Really. It's hard. It's hard living here. We need you. You need us. He sent them out two by two. We dare not go at this alone. If you're struggling with something, if you've got some intense thing going on in your life, the, your, number, your primary, primary desire probably is to isolate, to not tell anybody. And here the Bible would say over and over again, that's probably the worst thing you could do. We're meant to be together. This is a community of honesty and safety where we can be honest with each other and safe, but safe enough to wound one another, to challenge one another, to offend one another. And, I, and I, here's what I want to tell you. Those two things go hand in hand. The more you are loved, the more you will probably be offended. Love and risk go together. It is a fact. Love and risk go together. To love someone is to be vulnerable. To love someone is to be vulnerable and to risk being hurt. And see, what we want in our, we want to, we want to divorce that. We want to, we want to, we want to be accepted without the risk of being hurt. Without the risk of being offended. But when someone really loves you, they say to you, don't do that. I believe in you. You're better than that. I don't want to see you doing that again. Some of the, I've said this before, but some of the most dear friendships in my life are the ones that are the most blunt with me. <laughs> and there's such a, uh, there's, us ever losing our friendships is so not even on our radar that we can even be even rude. Not condoning rudeness, but I'm just saying there's such a strength in our relationship my friends, that we say things to each other that is just downright mean. If you guys were listening, you'd go, ew, that's so mean. And it is mean, and it's not an excuse. But the reason we have the freedom to do that is because nobody's going anywhere. No, we're committed to each other, absolutely committed to one another. No matter what, thick and thin, there's no such thing as us breaking apart. or That's not going to happen. We've tied ourselves to the mast. There's a we're in this together kind of a community. That's what 
church is supposed to be. That's the idea. Go out. Go out from here together. (laughs) Two by two or more. The idea is go together. Today, please don't think of church as we come together on Sundays and then we go our separate ways and hopefully survive until next Sunday. It's a start. But I'd rather it be we're here together and we're going to go out together whether that be through texting, through phone call, through going to lunch, inviting each other over for dinners, whatever it might be, seeing a movie together, enjoying pleasure together, enjoying a good meal together, whatever it might be, do life together. Be honest with each other. But someone's got to start that process of daring to be vulnerable. It's hard. But do it. So here's my, here's my suggestion to us. Dare to be vulnerable And for those of you that are on the receiving end, dare to be safe. And you'll notice the balance here in our our passage. Look it. He says, take nothing for your journey except a staff. So go out two by two. Take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. In other words, one thing that will kill you in this world is, is materialism. Instead of you having stuff, that's not the problem. It's when stuff has you. That's the problem. That, will, that can squelch your fire for the Lord. That's a disaster there. So he's saying, hey, be minimalistic. Don't depend on other things and stuff for your sense of security, for your sense of well-being. That's really hard for us here, is it not? We live in a very, very affluent place. It's very easy for us to say, man, I, don't feel, like, I feel less of a human unless I had that kind of phone in my pocket or unless I wore these kinds of clothes or unless I'm running with these kinds of people or driving this kind of car that's coming at us every day all the time every day all the time washing over I, I if I just had a bigger place if I just had this if I had more stuff if I could then I would feel okay he's saying no 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 don't depend on that I want you to depend on me and each other be minimalistic get what you need he's not saying you know Go out there and don't eat. He's saying, no, take what you need, but just what you need, and go together. Um, And whenever you enter a house to serve it, look at the balance here. Whenever you enter a house to serve it, stay until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and confront. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against it. In other words, be honest. You see the balance there. We're going to serve a place. It's a balance of love and truth. I'm going to speak the truth in love. I'm here to serve you. But I'm also going to tell you the truth. And look what they did. They went out and they preached the gospel. They used their words that people should repent. Don't you want to just not do that? Don't you want to just... Don't you just love when Christians say, we're going to serve people by just being nice? There's something in us that goes, yeah, that is the plan. I like that. I like that a lot. And I'm not saying you shouldn't, but I'm just saying we've highlighted one thing, emphasizes one thing over another. Look, they went out and they used their words. They preached. They said, look, this thing that you're serving is killing you. You think it's loving you, but it's hurting you. This thing that you're living for is lulling you to sleep. Wake up, repent from that. They, it's right there. They were confronting. And there was an expecting that some people are going to love you for it, and most people will not. I couldn't be more proud of you guys. Um, I was at this coffee shop a while ago, four weeks ago or something. And you guys remember Edward, who was here last week, um, uh, Asian young man from China, here last week. He, and he came the last three weeks. He sat down to me with, next to me at a, at a Starbucks at U Village. And I sit at U Village on this really big table that a lot of people can share. And usually it's me and a bunch of college kids that are around me, and we're all studying. And typically, the college kids or anybody that sits next to me want, it's very clear, they want no kind of relationship whatsoever. They've got their earbuds in. They won't talk to me. In fact, the other day, I lost internet connection, and I didn't know if it was my device or if it was the whole store's problem. So I asked the person next to me, do you have internet? The poor person 
did not, didn't know what to do just because I, I, you know, it was like, oh, he's, oh, someone's talking to me. And they were like, yep, sure do. And I was like, can you check? You know, they just didn't want, they're like, nope, I got it, yep. And I was like, okay. So then I had to go to the manager. But my point is, Edward sits next to me and he says, are you a professor? He talked to me first. And I said, no, I'm not a professor. And he goes, oh, well, why are you here? And I, so I told him, well, I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm studying for my sermon. And he said, oh, I go to this campus ministry. And we started talking. And then after a bit, I said, so how long have you been a Christian? And he said, oh, I'm, I'm not a Christian. And, we, and he asked me, what would, it, what, what, it, what would it be like to be a Christian? How do I do that? And so I told him, hey, well, you know, First, the first number one thing is to admit that you can't do it on your own. That we have a heart that serves other things rather than God. We have, uh, you know, our hearts are like idol factories. We make gods out of doorknobs if we could. You know, we just serve anything to make ourselves feel. And we have to repent of that and realize that Jesus died for us and this gift. And Richard started coming, or Edward, excuse me, started coming. And last week, Edward moved by himself. He got a job in Atlanta, Georgia. And he moved by himself, and we took him out to lunch last week, and he wept at the thought of leaving this church. Yeah, he said, please tell them thank you for being so nice to me. It was awesome. And I've overheard several of your conversations with him, and you told him the truth. Someone at lunch last week told him the truth someone in here two weeks ago I was listening overhearing they told him the truth they used their words they weren't just nice they served him but they were bold they lovingly told him what was real not in a mean way in a demeaning way but in a loving way well this is what it is and I'll tell you that young man he's this close to being a follower of Jesus he texts me every day <laughs> pictures of his new apartment he just passed his driving test. Pray for him. Pray for others. You know, he, he's, he's, he's doing it, and he, can't, and he wants to move back here in two years when his contract is up. He'd like to move back here so that he can be a part of this church. It's beautiful. That's how it's done. The idea of telling people to repent is not going out and standing on a soapbox and, and just yelling at people as they're going by. It's serving people. It's loving people. It's showing them that, hey, my identity is not found on materialism or this world or all the stuff that I have. I'm perfectly fine in my own skin because of Jesus. And if you want that too, you, you need to let go of the things that are killing you and, and are contorting you and are, are making you unhealthy so that you can come and, and be in line with the God who loves you so that you can become healthier and healthier and the one that you were meant to be. That's what it is. Now, how arrogant would it be of us to think that we could do that in a more loving way than Jesus? Jesus is love, right? He, didn't, he wasn't just loving. He is love. He didn't just tell the truth. He is truth, and yet at the end of his story, he's going to die. He's no Mr. Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers, by the way, but he's no Mr. Rogers. He said it like it was with love, and he loved him in such a way that they killed him. How arrogant would it be to think that we have some nicer, friendlier way to do this without being hurt? In other words, expect it. I have to tell you the truth you're going to be rejected. It's not a popular thing to say. But I need to warn you, you're going to be rejected if you embark on this life, and it's what you were called for. You're here for much more than what this world is telling you you're here for. God has a plan and a purpose for you that's incredible, but that's painful. How do we get through together? We, you, we cannot do it. And I mean that. I don't know how more to emphasize. You cannot do it by yourself. I cannot do it by myself. We've got to be in it together. So what does that mean? Number one, be vulnerable with each other. Invite folks over and tell them what's going on in your life. Tell them what you're struggling with. Tell them what you're wrestling with. 
You don't, and you don't have to get into the nitty-gritty. You know there's a way to be honest and not be detailed, right? You know that. That's not what I'm saying. But be honest. Man, I'm struggling with this. I've got this going on. Here's these other things. Because that fuels more on. And if someone is vulnerable to you, be safe. You know what it means to be safe? Number one, you're anonymous. You're not going to go, you know, they're not going to tell you. And by, by next Sunday, the whole church knows. Right? Be a safe person. Meaning, I know that nothing's going to be shared beyond this. You know, it's my story to tell, not theirs. Okay? If someone shares something with you, that's their story to tell, not yours. Respect that. That creates safety. Secondly, ask if they want your advice before giving it. Ask. I, can I share some of my own perspective? Is that okay? Invite, don't just, you know, kick open the door and here's what you should do. Don't should on people. No shooting on anybody, Okay? Don't shoot on yourself. Don't shoot on others. It, we're going to, you go, hey, can you mind? Hey, I went through something similar. Can I share my story? Though That's practical language that makes a community safe. And sometimes when the Spirit tells you, you have to say, hey, I love you enough that I'm going to tell you something here. I think that's hurting you. I think you're thinking about that a little wrong. May I challenge you on that a little bit? Is that okay? I'm here to talk to. I'm not judging you. Our friendship's there, but I love you enough to say this is, this is detrimental because I love you. Nothing in it for me. Our friendship's not going anywhere, but I gotta tell you, at some point, it needs to get to that point. Are we safe enough to wound each other? We won't make it through otherwise, guys. We won't. We won't. So here's what I, what I propose. We'll do some things that are organized with the church. We'll get each other together. We'll have organized dinners and yada, 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 all of that stuff. But I would love organic stuff to start happening. Invite people over. Go to coffee. Um, have dinner. Um, call each other on the phone. Have fellowship. And, and here's what I would recommend. A place where you're not in a rush. Make space to sit down Pick up a cup of coffee, take an hour or a half hour or 45 minutes and sit, put your phone on silent and look into somebody else's eyes and be present and enjoy each other. Enjoy each other and invite some others too. And go out together. Go out together. We have a lot of ways that that can happen. We have a diaconate that wants to help a deacon, the deacons that want to help you in your sphere of ministry and influence. If you have neighbors that need help, if you, have, if you yourself need help, talk to the, the diaconate. There's, a, there's a, a phone number you can call. There's a, it's a, there's a button on our website. That's a way the church can get involved. And the diaconate doesn't just come in and do it. They actually get other people from the church that also can help. They say, oh, I know so-and-so. They're kind of the connective tissue of our church. Oh, you need help over here? So-and-so's an expert or has some dealings with this. I'm gonna put these two people together. That's what the diaconate does. It's awesome, awesome. There's the church leaders, there's the elders, the elder board. We're, we're longing to help and jump into your lives. There's the way to serve together on Sunday nights. There's home groups, all of those things. Get involved and do it together.